Thank you each one for joining. Glad that we can be together here this morning. And uh, my name is Joe Reeves and uh, have recently become close friends and partners with Dr. John Terquato. And we're excited to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, we'll give a little bit more introduction, but I'd like to begin the morning with prayer. Uh, without the Lord's help, we're not going to get the things done this morning we'd like to do. So let's, let's bow our head and ask for help from above. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you that we can uh, be together here uh, online and from different places. And uh, we just pray that you would have your way with us and things that we say and uh, learn and that we will be on track with where you want to take us as your ministers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, yes, uh, I recently moved to Spokane, Washington to partner here with uh, Dr. Tequado uh, in Total Health Spokane. So we're co-directors of Total Health Spokane. I've been a pastor for eight years, started in May of 2012, uh, worked eight years in Michigan, last five years in Bering Springs, Michigan, first couple of years in the suburbs of Detroit, uh, doing a lot of evangelism, church planting, youth ministry, and otherwise. But we, this year, took a call uh, to come here to do city missions in Spokane. I'm the pastor of two churches, one, uh, the Northview, Spokane Northview Church, and also Spirit Lake, Idaho. And uh, as I, I took the place of uh, Pastor Wayne Cablano, who was uh, co-directing Total Health Spokane previous to me before his retirement, and um, so we just started a new year of, of missions. We have five volunteers that have joined us here in Spokane, and uh, they are working with us full time without pay, uh, volunteering a year, um, meeting people in the community. Uh, they're using tools uh, with health coaching and uh, bridging the gap between uh, health and spiritual and uh, those are some of the things we're going to be talking about this morning. Before I go to my next uh, slide, there is an email there, a medical ministry at gmail.com. And if you write down that email, and if you send an, e an email to that account, you'll receive an automatic reply. And that automatic reply from a medical ministry at gmail.com will give you a long list of resources that we have compiled at Total Health Spokane, uh, presentations and uh, booklets and so forth. And you can learn a lot about our, our program there. So. And today's, uh, today's notes will be updated on that particular email by tomorrow. Do you want to introduce yourself and anything, what you're about and where you come from? Sure, Dr. John Turquato. I've been in uh, the uh, North Idaho, Eastern Washington area for the past 15 years, working with pastors uh, for actually the last 20 years in, in this area with my previous position. Uh, so I've, I've had two positions in the area. Um, the last 15 years working with pastors, starting small clinics inside a church and um, uh, working with uh, teaching medical students and residents and interns uh, and uh, physicians interested in whole person care and um, using their offices and their opportunities uh, in ministry of uh, in medical ministry. Um, so I've uh, had the opportunity to work with the likes of Joe Reeves now, and uh, every, every uh, person I've talked to in this area as a pastor has always been a blessing to work side by side with, and that's kind of what I encourage to happen uh, in this particular presentation is for our physicians to work side by side, shoulder to shoulder, 
with pastors in medical evangelism. So that is the uh, title of our presentation this morning, Unity and Pastor-Physician Teams. So we're going to look at two, two verses here and then look at our objectives of what we're trying to look at over the next hour. Uh, when we're looking at the ministry of Jesus, who was a, a pastor and a physician, in a sense, because he did the, the ministry of teaching and healing. It says in Matthew 4, 23, as you're well familiar, that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And the reason that this is so important that Jesus did both preaching and healing is so that the love of God could not only be um, spoken to the world, but that the love of God could be demonstrated to the world. The preaching declared the love of God and the healing demonstrated the love of, the love of God. And those two have a power uh, together uh, that can move the world, which is what the world and the, is looking for now. And I believe the church is as well. So my other verse that I want us to think about for a minute is this prayer of Jesus. In John 17, verse 21, uh, in Jesus' final prayer at the end of his uh, ministry, right before his suffering, you're well familiar with this verse as well. It says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, we're living in a very divided world, a week out from our elections here in the United States, and the stress fractures blasting through our world are becoming deeper and deeper. And the world is looking for um, togetherness and unity. Now, there's nothing that amazes the world when people from the same neighborhood that look the same and sound the same and have the same culture are united. That's natural. That even fits within carnal nature. But what, am what amazes the world is when people from different backgrounds, different cultures, nationalities, languages can be united. It's when, it's when people are united that the world does not expect to be united, perhaps like doctors and pastors, because uh, we come from a unique position in, the, in our work fields. When a doctor walks into the room, uh, he's used to being in charge, I think, in a way. And the same for pastors. We are in charge and carry a lot of responsibility. Uh, people come to us asking questions more than we go to others asking questions. And so, but as we take something that could be an unlikely unity, not just partnership, but I'm talking about a close unity that I believe there's a, there's a certain power to that the church is waiting for and, and the world is waiting for. Um, and so that's why we uh, work together. We're blending our lives and our ministries and uh, in, in the ministry that we're trying to accomplish. So, um, we'll look at how this uh, fits in as we go. As we uh, look at unity of pastor-physician teams so that the world may know that you have sent me, our objectives here during our presentation, we want to identify current challenges to partnering medical professionals with gospel ministers. And uh, there are many, but we'll, we'll zero in on a few of them this morning. We're gonna discuss clinical benefits of interdisciplinary teams including healthcare providers, working with chaplains, and also pastors. 
demonstrate improved clinical outcomes when treatment focuses on physical, mental, and spiritual care. Fourth, to explore solutions that successfully join medical missionary work with gospel work. Inspire participants to catch a vision of how God wants to touch others physically, mentally, and spiritually through us as we implement his methods of labors. So I think we'll be doing pretty good if, uh, if we get through this. Um, the first challenge that I believe has weakened uh, the partnership between medical work and gospel work in our Adventist church for the last 120 years, perhaps, is a challenge of understanding what we're aiming for and what are the metrics? What are we called to achieve? And so these next few slides are going to look at some very important spirit of prophecy quotes, and we're going to try to establish uh, what, the, what the inspired counsel is um, to us. So perhaps some of you have heard this quote from Medical Ministry 241. And this describes uh, one of the worst evils that has come upon our movement and our churches. And it goes like this. My brethren, the Lord calls for unity, for oneness. We are to be one in the faith. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Our medical missionaries ought to be interested in the work of our conferences and our conference workers ought to be as much interested in the work of our medical missionaries. Well, that's a little bit alarming because that is actually describing and diagnosing a spiritual disease that has weakened our churches. It doesn't mention the, the clinics there. This is, this is weakening the church. The church needs uh, the medical missionaries and the medical missionaries need the gospel ministers. When those two are not united closely, uh, when they do not overcome the challenges of being together, there is a worse kind of evil that is upon our churches. So we're hoping to reverse that evil and the things that we look for. Unity is uh, the, the goal and what we want to achieve. So, oh, here we come. All right, so we're going to look at um, what our measurements are and how we accomplish uh, this unity. So we're gonna look here at Testimonies, volume eight, page 77, Council from Ellen White. We'll look at a few quotes here back to back, describing the, these uh, four or five quotes, describe the goal, uh, the target for medical missionary work. Here it says the medical missionary work is to be the work of the church is the right arm to the body. The third angel goes forth proclaiming the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The medical missionary work is to be the gospel and practice. Okay, so uh, we don't want to sever the right arm from the body. Notice here that the medical missionary work is tied in with the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, and it is the gospel and practice. It is what Jesus used to show God's love to the world as he went about healing. 
All right, uh, medical evangel called medical evangelism and health education, page seven. This is still Ellen White speaking. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation of the gospel. And that's what we need to do together. When you separate working for the body and the soul, it brings the worst kind of evil. So, Joe, when you're looking at these and you're saying that the union of Christ-like work for the body and the soul is a true interpretation of the gospel, you're basically saying that's what we're doing in our offices. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is, the, this is the experience that is the gospel in practice. I'm looking at my office and I'm looking at that. I'm trying to use this as a metric to figure out, is my, is my work the gospel in practice? Is my work really the true interpretation of the gospel? So I'm really kind of comparing myself to these quotes to see, does this where I fit? Is this, am I meeting the metric? Mm-hmm. Which I'm, that's what you're doing is you're sharing these quotes so me so so i can look at it and determine if indeed i meet the standard yes and i hope as uh, we share here this morning that um you allow the holy spirit to speak to you the things that that we haven't said and uh that we test ourselves or examine ourselves and think of the the changes or the directions to move in to make this happen more thank you and that's what we'll continue to share as we go along can, can I ask one question? Go ahead. What exactly means the gospel? Because it says true gospel. What means exactly? We can, we can talk about that. We've got some question and answer time at the end. So I'm going to write that down. And I think we may answer some of that question in as we go. And I'll ask this for George Talbot. Thank and you, George. At the end, we may want to check, check the chat box as well. Yes, we will do that. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Testimonies, volume six, page 266 says, thus genuine medical missionary work is bound up inseparably with the keeping of God's commandments, of which the Sabbath is especially mentioned, since it is the great memorial of God's creative work. Its observance is bound up with the work of restoring the moral image of God and man. If you look up the context of that quote, uh, she previously quoted from Isaiah 58, which describes the work of healing and it describes the Sabbath from God's commandments. And so restoring the moral image of God and man uh, is what we need to be doing in our clinics and in our churches, binding up the medical missionary work with the keeping of the commandments and restoring God's That's image. That's a pretty high standard, Joe, to well, we restore can't do the moral image of God in, in our clinics. We are now talking about something that is beyond our power of which uh, we are looking for divine help to do, because this is a, we're setting a metric here that is far beyond human ability. Keep going. Testimonies, uh, volume three, 161 says, I was again shown that the health reform is one branch of the great work, which is to fix people for the coming of the Lord. It is as closely connected with the third angel's message as the hand is with the body. All right. So the health reform work is actually to help prepare people for the second coming. Now, when you think, what does it take to fit people for the second coming? We're talking about character transformation. And so the health reform work is going to be involved in not just habitual change, but in character transformation uh, work that fits people for the coming of the Lord. So if we were to 
summarize all of these, um, we, the quotes we just read, pulling phrases from it, the medical ministry metrics. Our Adventist medical work should, should accomplish, uh, should be the gospel in practice. It should be every day of the week, the true interpretation of the gospel. It should be connected to keeping the commandments of God. Uh, our medical work should help restore the moral image of God and man. It is to be closely connected to the third angel's message, and it is to be preparing a people for the coming of Christ. So as you look at that slide there, just for a second or two before we move on, those, those are the, the mission, the orders, uh, the call that we've been given. And so those are ones to pray over and to practice and to wrestle with and to share with each other, which is what we're hoping today, so that God can uh, write his, his law and his ministry on our hearts, that it would flow through us in this way. So when I'm looking at what I do in a clinic, I can talk about how whole person care and spiritual interventions function in a clinical setting. I'm not certain that this is what I got, that I, this is what I understood early in my practice as to be the goal of medical missionary work. I kind of got the, the sense that this was more of the goal. You see, going through whole person care uh, clinics and, 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 um, in classes, both in uh, um, medical school and in residency, every whole person care conference that I ever attended, I can say, had a, a certain uh, way it was developed. It was how we were to use spiritual care and whole person care to achieve these great medical outcomes. How we were to use whole person care and spiritual things to improve patient satisfaction scores and and to demonstrate the clinical efficacy uh, of our spiritual care by less use of medications, less ICU days, less use of hospital resources, less costly medical therapies. And all of this is true. We have data to demonstrate that whole person care, spiritually focused care as well, it does indeed do these things. And, um, and it's very helpful and it's important as part of uh, medical evangelism. I, I found that there was a concern here early in my practice, though, when I was uh, speaking to somebody who was involved in Adventist healthcare, and they were at a presentation that was attended by physicians and pastors and teams, and they were presenting to these physicians and pastors and teams, and they got up front and they presented a whole person care conference that used uh, what I always had heard. We use spiritual uh, interventions to, to achieve these ends. And when I was listening to that, a thought came to my mind. And so I raised my hand and, and I was called upon and, and I said, you know, this is wonderful. This is tremendous. This is, all the pastors that were present were shaking their head and were grateful to see the way that spiritual care could have these great outcomes. And all the physicians were, yes, that's what we do. And so the question I had was, all right, so when we do these spiritual interventions and we come out with these great, these great outcomes, can you share with me how this pattern of working helps me as a medical evangelist to complete the gospel commission? There's a long pause and silence. It was really the question that everybody wanted to ask. 
And in the end, the uh, the it's, it's, it's person who is doing presentation, mm. the one who is doing the presentation, uh, in the end, had to say, you know, I can't speak to that, and he sat down, demonstrating that there wasn't that familiarity with anything past this in that particular circumstance. And so I've discovered that I wanted uh, th that we could easily um, fall into a subtle trap. And this is one that I want to bring forward in this presentation, one subtle but devastating mistake to avoid. And that is we have these great data points that demonstrate how spiritual care can take care of all these aspects. And we have data to show it. But then we have the medical ministry metrics, what I'm supposed to be actually accomplishing as a medical evangelist. And what I discover is that the way I was kind of, uh, kind of brought up was that I use spiritual things to achieve great medical outcomes. And I know that that's not the intent initially, but, but really that's where it stops generally. And the question is, where is God in the equation? But what I discovered is by looking at the combined picture of all these metrics, if indeed I did that, then I realized it's God who's in charge. And he uses great medical outcomes to achieve spiritual things. He helps people to understand his greatness and his goodness. And in a sense, where am I? in this whole process. I'm really more out of the picture and really that's really the humble place that I need to be. So the question becomes then, how are we doing? You know, when I look at these two, better medical outcomes, improved patient satisfaction scores all the way down versus the gospel in practice, in true interpretation of the gospel, all the way down to preparing people for the coming of Christ. When I have people walking out of my office, which one of those two do I actually say I can check off the box? I've, I've accomplished this. And so I have a proposed metric that is the ultimate metric as a medical evangelist. And that is the, the proposed metric of whole person care and Adventist medical work is that is my work as a Seventh-day Adventist healthcare provider helping me to complete the gospel commission? That is really what it comes down to. And these two sets of metrics, the ones that are based on data points that we can get in any secular environment, but especially good in our uh, Adventist environment of healthcare, and these evangelistic endpoints that are found in the spirit of prophecy as a high bar to meet, these are not mutually exclusive. We need both of these in order to do the job right. But one cannot be without the other. If we have these good data points, but we don't have the gospel in practice, we don't have people coming to know Jesus Christ in the process, are we actually helping to the degree that we have the capability to, to complete the gospel commission? I know that any time that we do work for the Lord, even if we can't say a word in season, the Lord is still capable of working in the life of a man or a woman. But how about... A, a planned, purposeful effort to meet the, the metrics. If you were working in a business environment, you'd find the metrics and you'd work towards it. It will change everything that you do. And so that's kind of uh, 
one of the one of the one of the concerns that I have is that we make sure these two sets of metrics are both being met to complete the gospel commission. So you have you have both goals in in, in the office then. That is correct. For great medical outcomes yes. as well as great spiritual outcomes. Without going hand in hand. Without great medical outcomes, without excellence in medicine, then spiritual care becomes to the world a hollow promise. But without the evangelistic focused high bar that God has set in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy, good medical outcomes becomes people who are great in health, but who will die for eternity. Go ahead. All right. Well, so the challenges we've looked at, we've looked at some of the wrong metrics and the challenge of keeping our eyes on what our goal actually is. All right, so we're going to talk further about how to accomplish some of these things. I put the objectives. Sorry, uh, I'll watch. There was a objectives went back on the screen there. Uh, we're looking at the benefits of interdisciplinary teams. We're looking at dem to demonstrate improved clinical outcomes of treatment, focusing on physical, mental, and spiritual, and exploring solutions that successfully join medical missionary work with the gospel work. Okay, so, so there. Uh, I think a good place to start here when we're talking about how to do this is uh, a job description and our goal. We're talking about unity in medical ministry, and we're talking about physicians and pastors. What is the job description? Physicians are to keep the pastors practical, and pastors are to keep the physicians focused on the gospel. There's some good one-liners to write down there and remember um, because we need the gospel demonstrated and spoken. And pastors are speaking the, the gospel and teaching it. And physicians are demonstrating the gospel, which is why we need it together. And when Jesus came here, it was a demonstration. So uh, we need to ask ourselves as healthcare providers, are we helping to complete this commission? Uh, so it says in Isaiah 58, uh, <clears throat> is this not the fast kind of fast that I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wander with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them. And to turn away, not to turn away uh, from your own flesh and blood. And the verses thereafter promise uh, healing and wholeness. And so this care for the community has everything to do with uh, physical uh, uh, health. So as we go to the world, whoops, is, uh, and some of their research has shown this. So here we have uh, from the University of Wisconsin, when we're uh, addressing uh, uh, health, what's that? The social um, components of health. But this diagram is, is showing the components that contribute to a person's health and well-being. And we have there clinical care being 20%, which is what's happening in the clinic. And uh, the secular researchers are identifying these other health behaviors, social and economic factors, and physical environment is largely 
the, the uh, majority contributing to their health and well-being. So clinical care, there's major something much larger, which is why when you uh, partner with the pastor that is out in the community, you can look at some of these other things. So this is from the American Academy of Family Physicians, and they're saying the same thing when they're looking at social determinants of health. 83% agree of family physicians should identify and help address patients' uh, social determinants of health. Um, but they're saying 80% 80 of them say they don't have time to discuss those things. 78% um, of these doctors agree that they should partner with community organizations to address community health disparities. Majority of these doctors agree, 75%, uh, that they should advocate for public policies and address social determinants of health. The world is acknowledging the need for the partnership between the clinic and uh, the church and these other things that affect the community. So you can see how much the community affects uh, health and longevity, even from one um, neighborhood to the next. You can find many of these maps from different places, but we grabbed a sample of one here, just a few miles away, average age 68, and just uh, not too far away, the average age 88. Is it just a difference in clinics? Well, we know there's, there's much more to it than that which is why uh, lifting the health of a community has much more to do than just what's happening inside the clinic. Uh, when we're looking at the community um, and how to raise the bar, uh, the church, its members, and the pastor should be out in the community every week and continually with the people and uh, to minister to these areas of needs. So community interventions, um, this is a, a slide we pulled from the CDC. Uh, Actually, this is the uh, American Academy of Family Physicians. Yeah, and they, yeah. they partnered on that. That's right. And so they gave a little list here of uh, organizations to collaborate with that physicians should for maximum uh, outcome and benefits, including healthcare providers right there besides faith-based organizations. So uh, people of the world are pointing to what Spirit of Prophecy as well has told us. So when we look at what happens in the church, we're dealing with people's needs that affect their health, that affect their character, and ultimately um, their destiny. So at the Northview Church, where we're at now in the Northview Church, Dr. Tequato has a clinic inside our church, and we're out in our community. Um, meeting people and uh, learning their stories and ministering to their needs. So this is a picture taken here uh, before I came here of a family not far from us, a single mother, six kids. And this was literally what their refrigerator looked like. Their biggest meal of the day was at school. Uh, they were very hungry on the weekends and the mother had breast cancer, was in chemotherapy. How did the church respond? You can see that in the next uh, picture. Uh, the church rallying together to provide this to that family and uh, donations. And uh, when people give, they're giving their hearts as well. So the church is united in meeting this need. Here's a picture of the family right here. Um, did you get to meet them? Want to say anything about them? Sure. Mm -hmm. So this family was identified through the medical work 
that was, was being done through the church. And the medical work could not reach out into the community as well as the church that did all this work. That church was a, uh, not financially well off. And yet you saw the amount of materials gathered for this family by, the, by people that did not have many resources. And they gave those resources, these children who were going hungry at night and on the weekends. And what this demonstrates very nicely is when you have a pastor who is interested in the medical work and the medical work keeps the pastor practical by showing the need and giving things that can be done. And the pastor then being practical can go into the community and meet those needs for the benefit of the gospel. In the process, the, this family, we wanted to do this anonymously. So we had the fire department deliver. They delivered two Suburbans full of food to this family, bag after bag after bag coming into the home, families crying with tears going down their face. They, they had a, a large fire truck they took with them. And, and so people's uh, attention was drawn uh, to, the, to the work that was done. But nobody knew, knew who it came from except the firemen. The firemen knew where it came from. And guess what? Because of this work being done, city officials now have the church on the map because of work of beneficence done to a pastor who is willing to be practical and giving guidance to uh, the, the two of us, giving guidance uh, to how to meet needs in the community. So as we're out in the community, we form partnerships with community leaders that give us maps like these showing right around our church where the houses are that they know that there's drugs at and uh, trying to uh, combat the, the effects of that in the community. And uh, one of the ways that uh, we were in the community and the, the people got to know us is right from our own students. So this is forming partnerships. The, the, the clinic can find out the needs in the, in the community, can communicate it to the pastor. The pastor is partnering not only with the church, but with schools as this next uh, video shows. Now, a woman in Mead got quite the surprise this morning. She woke up to find dozens of teens at the mobile home park where she lives. She didn't know why they were there, but what she soon found out put a smile on her face. KHQ's Andrea Olson went to see what these kids are up to for their spring break. Well, this is a site that you don't typically see. There's about 50 different kids and adults here cleaning up this community, and they're from all around Washington State as far as Walla Walla. Now, people here in the community say they are so grateful for their help. Raking leaves and doing yard work. It makes me feel really good. Chris Chef can't help but smile as these teens work hard around her community. There's so many retirees here being on Social Security. You have this people coming to help you. I can't do a lot of it. I've had several surgeries now and can't do the work I used to. The teens are part of a church group who all wanted to volunteer their time during spring break. A couple people go up to the kids and be like, oh, what are you doing? And it's like, well, we're we're just cleaning up. And it's like, well, why are you, why are you guys doing this? Like, you're teenagers. You should be at home right now, like sleeping away, getting like nothing done on your spring break. And it's like, yeah, but you know, we want to be here. Seventeen-year-old Sarah Kozashenko says she came from Walla Walla to do all of this in Mead. We like doing this. She says a bunch of teens get together and choose a community to help. They'll be out here for seven hours a day for the rest of the week. 
an act of kindness that Chris is grateful for. I want to thank the kids and their leaders for doing this. In Mead, Andrea Olson, KHQ Local News. How cool wow. is that? So this is just one more example of how a pastor physician team can get together and help to complete the gospel commission. Because we look at Isaiah 58, we talk about feeding the hungry and the poor and providing the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, you clothe them and et cetera. The place where you were seeing these kids work was actually, uh, uh, was actually strengthened by the, these 50 kids who spent a week of their spring break and each paid $100 as kids to bless this mobile home park. And there are people there that hadn't taken pride in their homes for years. And, and people that had a high incidence of, uh, of, of uh, unemployment as well as high incidence of uh, teen suicide and high incidence of drug abuse and, and uh, criminal activity. And you start to see things turn around when you have a pastor physician team because it's a three-legged stool. The, the physician can help the pastor become practical. The practical pastor can then activate his church and the, the church then works in the community. So this helps the ultimate metric to be achieved. And that is, is my work as a healthcare provider in the Seventh-day Adventist healthcare work, helping to complete the gospel commission. So finally, we have this last objective to cover. And that is how to inspire uh, uh, participants to catch a vision of how God wants us to touch others, physically, mentally, and spiritually, through and through us to, uh, to as we implement his methods of labor, how can we touch others this way? And uh, so we want to talk about an office-based medical approach for those uh, that are in that kind of setting. The first thing I want to do is I want to, I want to outline the typical office um, uh, visit. As a professional, people come to me as a professional because they want my opinion. And as a physician, what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to gather data and then I want to make change. And the way I make change is I try to imbue the thoughts of my patients with the ideas that I'm sharing with them, give them data, and I want them to have feelings that they want to change, the yearnings to make difference in their lives, particularly in these lifestyle-related issues. And then hopefully that'll inspire actions. And finally, we, really the ultimate goal, the thing that we're really trying to achieve, the, the final end product is to come to a habit that will hold the patient. And this is actually based on a very scientific model, Prochaska's model of change, it's also known as the trans-theoretical model. And you see that, that this model in almost all types of change models that are out there, they're based on this kind of, uh, of uh, a model of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. And so it really follows thoughts and feelings, actions, and habits. You know, And really the issue is we're trying to motivate the individual to use their willpower to make a change in their habits. And this is the typical medical practice. And we also use this uh, Maslow's hierarchy of change. We, we use the Maslow's hierarchy of change trying to help patients be uh, motivated uh, to uh, change their actions uh, using these, uh, these, uh, this hierarchy of things that are uh, important to them. And we go for everything from the self-actualization as a motive all the way down to safety and physiologic uh, um, uh, uh, strength that doctors can use. We call it the doctor card. You know, if you don't do this, you're going to die. And, uh, and so we have Maslow's hierarchy of change, which you, we use as motivators. 
And so this is what happens in a typical medical practice uh, that I have experienced. And I'm basically using uh, this level of medical knowledge, scientific knowledge applied compassionately, using excellence in medical care, focusing on prevention, using eight natural remedies, providing whole person care, and really personally connecting with my patients, demonstrating kindness and respect. In the end, the question I have to ask now, of course, is, is this helping me to complete the gospel commission? And to a degree, yes, it is. But is it as systematic as the, uh, the planned, desired outcome and metrics that we started this talk with? And remember, the outcome is that it's supposed to be a branch of the work that helps to complete the gospel commission and helps prepare a people for the second coming of Christ. When people walk out of my office, habits being adjusted and changed, is that really helping to prepare people for the coming of the Lord? And is it somehow connected with the third angel's message? So then I want to give you a quick case study. As I share this case study with you, I'm going to show you how I've decided ah, there must be more. So the case study goes like this. I was in the office one day and a, and a beautiful young lady comes into the office. She's uh, coming for some lab results and uh, coming for the typical lab, uh, I mean, office visit, you know, and I'm gonna go down and make some medical recommendations, help her to have her thoughts and feelings and actions change. So hopefully she gets the habits. And I notice on the chart that it says she's a smoker. Now, as any good family practice physician will want to do, preventive care is first off, we wanna do that. So I ask, Four quick questions in succession. Do you smoke? Yes. How much? Pack a day. How long? For 10 years. Do you want to quit? No. Right in that order. Bam, 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 bam. And doing those four questions very quickly in a family practice setting will help a good number of people quit. But this beautiful young lady didn't want to quit. So immediately, I went to Maslow's hierarchy of change. I wanted to give her some thoughts that would engender feelings, helping her make actions to quit smoking and eventually stop the habit. And so I go to the first thing that I can think of that would make a big difference to a young and beautiful lady. I said, ma'am, did you realize that some people say that when you smoke cigarettes, that it causes wrinkles around your lips? Very simple thing. But it is looking at the very top of Maslow's hierarchy of change, self-esteem and self-actualization. But, you know, looking at something that I thought she might be interested in, beauty in her young age. Her response was something to the effect of, doctor? Are you trying to say that you don't like my face? No, that's not what I was getting at. Strike one. So I said, all right, so that really didn't go anywhere. So let me try. I want to help her to quit smoking. I'm going to try something else. I'm going to go further down in Maslow's hierarchy of change. I'm going to use Prochaska's model of thoughts, feelings, actions, and habits. So I'm going to try to get her to quit smoking for a bigger motivator. I said, ma'am, did you know that... Um, You've been smoking a pack a day for the last 18, uh, last 10 years, and it costs $1,800 per year to smoke a pack a day. And, and if you had uh, uh, counted the money for the uh, past 10 years, you spent $18,000 that have gone up in smoke. And if you would simply use the same amount of money right now and set it aside, you would have $18,000 10 years from now that you could spend on uh, in a vacation, a car, down payment on a house, you know, health insurance, whatever. And I'm going for this right here, love and belonging. I really want achievement, you know, to belong in a different class, you know, of financial independence. And I'm going for a little deeper uh, uh, effort in Maslow's hierarchy. And her response was something like, you know, Doc, you only go around once in life. You might as well enjoy it to the hilt. Strike two. So now I'm going for the big guns. I got to figure out 
I give myself three shots. I'm going for the big guns. Now I'm going to pull out the doctor card. And I said, ma'am, did you know that when you smoke a pack of cigarettes per day, that you're increasing your risk of cancers, uh, uh, increase the risk of heart disease, lung disease, and uh, that you can have cancer of the, the mouth, the throat, the lungs, the, the uh, pharynx, the, uh, uh, the breast, the colon, the skin, uh, the cervix, all increase as a risk of your cancer, uh, 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 risk of cancer using these cigarettes. And also that doesn't include sinusitis as well as emphysema, COPD, bronchitis, et cetera. That'll cost you more of health and suffering. And, but if you quit today, within a year, the loss of your lung capacity will even out so that you'll decrease your lung capacity at the same rate as anybody else, although down further because of your smoking history, at the same rate of decline as the rest of the population. If you stop right now, you'll get that benefit. And she said something to the effect of, you know, doctor, this is my last vice and I'm not giving it up. Done, finished, done. I am all done. I can't go any further. I asked three times, I can't go any further. So I said, fine, I am gonna go move it on. So I said, you're here for labs. I opened the chart. I said, the labs that you came for last week uh, and uh, I've got the results here. I said, um, the labs show that you're pregnant. This woman looked at me for a long time. Then she reached down, picked up her purse and she walked briskly across the room. I thought, oh no, now I've done it. I pushed her so much, so hard. I pushed her on preventive care. Now she's got what she wants. She's going to get out of here. I'll never see her again. My reputation is toast because she's going to tell everybody in the world that I pushed her too hard. And she stopped at the door. She turned and there was a trash can by the door. She opened her purse, pulled out her cigarettes and her lighter, threw them in the trash and closed her purse and came and sat back down next to me. And my jaw was on the ground. And I was thinking like, what, what just happened? She said, I quit smoking. I said, just like that? You quit smoking just like that? She said, well, yeah. I said, wait a second, wait a second. I, gee, I talked to you about wrinkles. That wasn't good enough. I, I talked to you about the financial independence and, and that you weren't, that's, that wasn't okay. I talked to you about self-preservation, the highest motivator of man. And that did not do it. I tell you, you're pregnant and you suddenly you quit. And she said to me, Dr. Turquato, I'm going to be a mother and I will love my baby. And no matter how much it hurts, I am not going to smoke so that child can live. And so I, I discovered that there was something bigger, something more than just habits that I'm shooting for, something more than all the things that I could have done in thoughts, feelings, and actions. I, there was something deeper, something more important. And I discovered that I was shooting for the wrong target. Habits were the wrong target to shoot for. I needed to shoot for another one. You wonder how it is that uh, a 160-pound man can walk into a, uh, an arena with a two-ton bull, and the 160-pound man comes out the victor. Well, the way it happens is the cape. Because the bull, with all of his superior strength and speed, goes after the cape as the enemy. But that wouldn't be so bad as long as behind the cape was not the sword that causes death to the bull. And so I think, in a sense, we have been following the wrong, the wrong goal, habits. The ultimate metric really is something to do with our job descriptions. And it really is, how is this work helping the gospel commission? There's got to be something deeper. And if that's deeper, it's more than habits, what is it? Because if my professional opinion is not what it's making, what is this deeper focus that's supposed to happen that can make something different? 
why is this not happening in, in my office consistently in a planned manner? I discovered the deeper thing is character. This woman was a mother, a sacrificial mother, a loving mother. These are character traits. And these character traits appealing to the character made a difference and it was a better target. And it helped me to have more power in helping her to quit in long-term change. When you think about what your character is, it's your identity. Character traits are marked by, you know, fairness and principle, trustworthiness, temperance, you know, virtue. This is who you are as a person. It helps you to make decisions between things that will be difficult to decide between, except the character makes it easier than just developing a habit. Habits will change with your, with your condition, with your circumstance, but your character will be stable. And then if the character is what we need to focus on, how do we influence that? Well, conscience influences character. And the question is, who has a conscience? Well, everybody has a conscience. I can talk to a woman who's living with her boyfriend in a, uh, in a sexual relationship that they're not married in. And I ask her, would you consider going out on a date with somebody else other than the guy you're living with? And she says, absolutely not. And I asked her, I said, why not? She says, because it would be wrong. You see, she has a conscience and her conscience is informed. It's just not as informed as I would like to have it. So character and conscience are two powerful modalities that I can use. And now I do. I use these in a secular setting to talk to patients about more powerful ways to make long-term change. And so conscience in the clinical setting helps you to go through a whole brand new thought process because now it's internalized. It's not just my professional opinion to making a difference. So if conscience and character are the things that are powerful in the setting of the clinic, what is it? How is it that these can be directed? Because conscience can be misdirected and character can be abnormally developed. So is there some power that can be strengthening this whole uh, picture to be able to stay on target in a way that's consistent with the gospel commission? And that is true. There is a way. And that is this, a knowledge of the will of God. A knowledge of God, a true knowledge of God of what he's like can make the difference to focus both the conscience and the character in a way that brings life. Do you offend patients by using words like character and conscience? I talk to them all day about character. Men who have, women who have not had anything to do with religion or in, are antagonistic to religion. And I speak to them about their character and I speak to them about their conscience. And it is a neutral term for them. A few days ago, I had somebody come to me and wanted to be rebaptized in my church. And as I visited with her two days ago, um, I found out that she's made changes to her diet and um, she's made changes to some other areas in her life. And uh, did she make a change in her diet because somebody told her to? No. Was it because something she read? No. It's because something happened deep inside of her where she was uh, in love with Jesus in a new kind of way. And this knowledge of God, which is not just knowledge of God, but a love of God, not a false knowledge of God, which is what many churches are teaching or a skewed view of God's character. But when people realize that they are loved and that they can love, it changes everything so quickly. She was acting on knowledge that she had, thoughts that she had about her health years ago. It wasn't, it wasn't new training or education that changed her. 
but going through a, a, a spiritual transformation recently uh, has changed all kinds of areas in her life very quickly. And uh, I, I'll have the privilege of rebaptizing her in a couple of weeks. And that's why we need a whole person approach that changes the whole person. So the question is, why is the distinction between habits and character as a target for change important to Seventh-day Adventists? It's very simple. We have a, a prophecy. We are headed into the last showdown between good and evil in this world, and it's over character. Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that we will face a test of conscience uh, that will try our character, will prove by whose power we live by. And now when we're dealing in these realms, we are preparing people for the second coming of Jesus. Uh, you can see those words over there on the right side of the screen. Secular healthcare deals with what's above the blue line. But medical evangelism deals with everything, including what's below the blue line. Sharing a knowledge and a love that transforms character and changes their destiny. So we're told from the spirit of prophecy, if the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong. And the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. That's what we're aiming for. Thus, actions repeated form habits. Habits form character. And by the character, our destiny for time and for eternity is decided. And thus, medical evangelism is not just changing a person's health for this life, but their destiny for eternity. So we're looking at the knowledge of God and causing the power of the will uh, to be changed. So what's our approach, medical evangelists? So medical evangelists, remember the blue line, everything below the blue line affects uh, the spiritual life. It becomes, if we address the issues of conscience and character and can somehow work towards helping people to come to a proper understanding of the knowledge of God, then we now have the gospel in practice. We now have the true interpretation as uh, com compared to a partial interpretation. And we have helped to restore the moral image of God and man. It is as closely connected to the three angels' message as the arm is to the body, and we are in the process of preparing a people for coming for the second coming of Christ. And in the end, the ultimate metric has been met. Is my work as a Seventh-day Adventist healthcare provider helping to complete the gospel commission? And really, our ultimate, our ultimate source of power becomes one thing, the knowledge of God. It provides power by encouraging the power of the will to be submitted to God. And this actually is the final end to this question. You want to take this? Sure. Go Excellent for it. Apostles. This is the conclusion of our presentation here. Having received the faith, page 530 of Acts of the Apostles, having received the faith of the gospel, the next work of the believer is to add to his character virtue and thus cleanse the heart, prepare the mind for the reception of the knowledge of God. Once that way has been prepared, this knowledge of God is the foundation of all true education and of all true service. And it is the only real safeguard against temptation. And it is this alone that can make one like God in character. Oops. So this knowledge of God, all true education, it's the foundation of it. Thoughts and feelings, all true service, our actions, it's the foundation of it. Comes to temptation and habits, it's the only real safeguard. Comes to our character, it alone can make us like God. And thus it's a knowledge of God 
alone that can complete uh, character transformation. And so the issue here becomes, as I, as a medical professional, want to help my patients overcome lifestyle-related habits, and I'm looking at their temptations, this knowledge of God is the only real safeguard against those temptations. And when I want to change their character, this knowledge of God, really, the degree they see a correct picture of God, this alone can help mankind become like God in character. So the things that I'm worried about in a clinical sense can be addressed through this knowledge of God, if I can figure out how to bring this out in a clinical setting. Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Question was asked earlier, what is the gospel? And that's it right there. It's to know God and Jesus Christ. Paul said the gospel is the power to save us. And so we hope that you've been encouraged today as you've uh, listened to this and inspired you can email that, that email that's on the screen. Any of you are welcome to come visit us in Spokane and see our, our clinic and our church and see what we do. Uh, you can send your children or your friends to Total Health Spokane to volunteer for a year for health coaching and these other things that we've described. And may Jesus come soon. I was asking the question regarding the gospel because the gospel is not just a uh, uh, simple uh, doctrine, but this is a person. Jesus is the gospel. Amen. They say when he born in Bethlehem, they say the gospel. This is the good news. We have a savior. And Jesus came to save us from the eternal death. And he was living a perfect life for you and for me. And he was dying in the cross for you and for me. And the people need to know that. In addition Amen. to what you say, and this helped people to, to, to find the solution for the problems in their life. And I was uh, just make a, a, a small comment. I was looking, searching all the literature that we give the patients, and it's very hard to find the gospel in our literature. We need to check and to see uh, there is a lot about our health, about society, about sin, about the prophecy, about the beast, and all, all the comments. But about Jesus, it's hard to find. Mm. And the people need Jesus. Yes. That is the only solution. And thank you for the opportunity to say that. Thank you, Dr. Talbot. Anybody else before we leave? Uh, we'll be on our way. Dr. Turquato. I was wondering if you could speak to, um, I guess, both physicians and pastors on the best way to network with each other if you have a heart for medical ministry. Because I think one of the things that I was personally blessed by from you know witnessing how you work is just how closely you work with Pastor Cablano back then and now with Pastor Reeves. And, and I feel like although many physicians and pastors are engaged in medical ministry, relatively few of them have as close of a working relationship as you and Pastor Reeves. And um, I know that one of the challenges I run into is uh, sometimes I look around in my region and I honestly can't find a pastor who I can link arms with and, you know, we're at the exact same level committed to the same mission. So in a situation like that, what would you advise in, in finding someone? Well, first of all, John, I think that your question is well put because it is one of the hardest things that we face 
as physicians and pastors. There are pastors that yearn to work with physicians. They yearn to work with, with physicians, but they don't know how. And they, they've actually, through our training, kind of been pushed aside from it. And so uh, physicians in the same way, too, um, we're kind of pushed away from it in a lot of times so that uh, I've had people put their, their finger in my nose and say, you are a fool for working with pastors. These are, these are Seventh-day Adventist medical evangelists you know, that, that see themselves as workers for Jesus. It says, you're a fool for working with pastors. They don't understand medicine. They don't, they don't, uh, they'll mess up, you know, medicine. Well, I think the biggest issue, John, that, that we're talking about is twofold. Number one, humility. We have to be humble enough that we will work with others and let people into our space. If we believe that it's all about us, I've had many physicians tell me, why do I need a pastor in my life? I've got the whole thing. I am the whole thing. I, I've got the whole thing together. I can do that. I've got pastors that say, what difference does it make to have a physician? They're not really committed to, they don't show up at church anyway. They're on call. Who cares? You know? And so they don't understand each other. So the first thing is humility to see the other person's viewpoint. But the second thing that I really think is the crux of it. You have to be friends. You can't just clock the same clock. And work in parallel you actually have to work you have to work collaboratively you see and um, you in order to do that you have to really care about the individual the the strongest things i've ever done as a physician in ministry is when a pastor was sitting back and playing his guitar on sabbath afternoon he says i could do it. i just wish i could speak to the leaders of the community they won't even let me into their offices i said you want to talk to leaders of the community he said yeah i said all right call me on monday so on Monday, I get on the phone. I say, hey, um, you guys at the county offices, do you want a um, professional uh, level uh, wellness program for your, your offices? Well, yeah, we'd love it. But we can't afford it. I said, how about free? Could you do that free? I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll send on next Monday, I'll send my pastor over. Your pastor? I said, yeah, he does pastoring on the weekends, but on his, his day job is working with me, you know, in the evenings as well, you know, but during the week. He works with me and he sets up these, these programs for me. So the entire year they worked together. This pastor and this community, this community uh, leader, at the end of the year, they said, hey, we like so much of what you've done. We want you to now present to all the county commissioners in the state and their offices. Would you be willing to do that? And he said, yeah, but you remember, I don't go anywhere without my pastor. Yeah, 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 we know that pastor. He's fine. Bring him on. And so our pastor then shared a presentation where he shared with all the county commissioners and their offices in a 30 minute presentation, the seven, uh, seven uh, habits of highly successful people from a Seventh-day Adventist perspective. And then for the next four hours, they asked, they gave us time for the next four hours to minister to the needs of all those county commissioners in their office. Well, that's an amazing opportunity, but it happened because friends were sitting there together while he played his guitar and just wished, kind of like David, oh, for some water of the wells of Bethlehem. People that love David went and got it. So that's, and, and then the thing is, the pastor realized he wasn't worthy of it. The, the, David realized he wasn't worthy. He poured it out before the Lord because it was an offering to Jesus. You see, that's the kind of humility. That's the kind of friendship. When you don't have anybody that you can find, you use what you've got and you start to develop it. I believe there are people that could be brought up to that level of commitment and connection once they were seeing it's a safe place to be. Thank you. Yeah, good question. Good question. Anybody else have a question before I move on? 
Thank you so much, John. Um, sorry, I forgot your name. Joe. Yeah, that's all right. No problem. Thank you, both of you. It was beautiful. I, I just, I'm convinced that the text you started with is, is kind of the answer for our time. We need to be in contrast to the world, and unity is, is where it's at. So thank you very much for teaching that. Yeah, and I think really the essence of unity is friendship. And friendship bespeaks love between people. And that love between people makes people humble and transparent and vulnerable. And in that environment, God does miraculous things. Okay, I think we're all done then. Thank you so much, all of you. I am grateful for your time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.